0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer, and this is Between the Lines. Well, Russia invaded Ukraine nearly a year ago. It's been a bloody and brutal affair that has rightly attracted the world's attention. But have you noticed the dearth of critical media voices of the west's response that's right if you follow the major australian mainstream media the abc news corp outlets the nine newspapers black ink book publications like the saturday paper the guardian australia and so on you'll rarely hear or read any criticism of the western response to the ukraine crisis ditto the uk from the telegraph and the times on the right To The Independent and The Guardian on the left, there are hardly any dissenting voices, including, by the way, on the BBC and UK Sky News. Now, nowhere is this lack of debate more evident than in the US. The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The Los Angeles Times, CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN, (laughs) the public broadcasters, NPR, PBS, Fox News, with the exception of the popular presenter, Tucker Carlson, you just don't hear the counter-arguments about the war. So why do pro-interventionist accounts dominate the airwaves and the op-ed pages? And is this state of mind healthy in a vibrant liberal democracy? Or has the Russian invasion of Ukraine been so outrageous, so obviously brutal, that there is just no need to hear a different view? Ted Galen Carpenter is a senior fellow in defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. That's a prominent libertarian think tank in Washington. He's author of a new book called Unreliable Watchdog, the News Media and U.S. Foreign Policy. It's published by Cato Books. Ted, welcome back to Between the Lines. Well, thank you very much, Tom. It's great to be on your show again. Now, let's start with Ukraine. How do you account for the dearth of counterarguments
2: to the prevailing narrative? We've had a dominant narrative that goes beyond portraying the war in very simplistic terms as an ugly act of aggression, unprovoked entirely, and that there is an immoral obligation on the part of the United States and its NATO allies to support Ukraine to repel this act of aggression. Even that would have been greatly oversimplifying a complex situation including the role that expanding NATO to Russia's borders played as a provocation for this war. The United States tried to turn Ukraine into a NATO member in all but name, engaging in making Ukraine a full-blown U.S. military asset. But the dominant narrative goes beyond that. and It's even worse. Uh, The... Proponents of the current policy try to portray Ukraine as this freedom loving democracy, and that the war, therefore, is part of a global struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. Well, Ukraine is not a democracy, even with the most expansive definition of that term. It is a corrupt oligarchy and an increasingly repressive authoritarian regime. So This is a dishonest portrayal. Many listeners tuning in would say that the
1: West, both the political and media class, has rightly lined up to proclaim their solidarity with the little guy. It may not be a vibrant liberal democracy that you and I know about, but they're pledging solidarity with the little guy. They're deploring the big bully Putin. And let's remember the fact that Russia did invade a sovereign, independent state that just wants to determine its own fate
2: well it's it's an excellent point uh however uh if we're concerned about the rules based international order russia's action unjustified as it is is not uh, the first or even most notorious case the united states and its allies have engaged in a variety of military actions over the last several decades that have destabilized the so-called rules-based international order. What the U.S. did in places like Serbia, detaching Kosovo forcibly from Serbia, the Iraq war, the NATO uh, Mm. military strikes on Libya to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi and turn that place into a, a total cauldron of chaos, its actions against the Syrian government, and so on. So it's more than a little hypocritical. For the U.S. and its allies to proclaim this is an essential struggle to preserve the rules-based international order against an aggressor. And this point about hypocrisy, we've
1: had on this program many times before his death in 2020. Professor Stephen Cohen, uh, the distinguished Russia hist- Russian historian from Princeton University and New York University, as I said, he sadly passed away a few years ago, but he was often demonised for making the argument that Russia's concerns over US-led meddling in its traditional sphere of influence were completely rational and that the Russians had a fair point that to them, a NATO and EU expansion right onto Russia's doorstep uh, is as if Moscow had signed up Cuba and Venezuela in a military pact and then tried to plant missiles there pointing north to America. Am I right in saying you subscribe to that view?
2: Well, it's an apt comparison. What bothers me the most, though, is not whether people like Stephen Cohen were right or wrong. It is the utter unwillingness of the news media to even give time Mm. for the expression of alternative views like those Cohen expressed. Instead, they are critics like that are smeared as Putin's puppets, as Russian agents, when there is absolutely no evidence of any of that. Many of the critics, and it goes
1: beyond left and right, Ted, they'd say what Putin's doing right now in Eastern Europe is akin to what the Nazis did uh, throughout Europe in the late 1930s.
2: Well, first of all, the, the smear tactics I find very disturbing and reminiscent of The U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s its really, really getting ugly. Beyond that, I wish people would put the 1930s analogy to bed. It's eight decades old and trying to shoehorn that uh, to make it apply to every situation of disorder in the world. And that's what has been done over over the decades. That is not helpful. And that leads to really bad policies. And we're seeing it now with Ukraine. The United States and its allies are incurring horrific risks to defend what should be considered a marginal geostrategic interest at best and a rather unpleasant government to boot. So why would the United States and its allies risk literally nuclear war with a country that possesses over 6000 nuclear weapons that's what we're doing you go so far as to
1: say the elite us press has served as a conduit for outright ukrainian propaganda tell us more
2: well there have been a number of stories that have been printed uh, that that literally were generated by the ukrainian government and had no basis in fact at all And were later debunked. But of course, people remember the original story. They don't remember the correction that was done weeks or months later and with much less exposure. And unfortunately, this is not unique to uh, the media's treatment of the Ukraine war. The news media have often been instruments of U.S. and allied propaganda in a whole host of settings, including the lead-up to the Iraq war, including support for Bashar al-Assad's opponents in the Syrian war, who turned out to be, for the most part, Islamic jihadists. So this, again, this level of lack of critical thinking, at best, and outright dishonesty at worst, is what's characterizing the modern news media.
1: My guest is Ted Galen Carpenter. He lives in Austin, Texas, and we're talking about his latest book, Unreliable Watchdog, the News Media and US Foreign Policy. It's published by Cato Books. Now, as you just said, Ted, the Ukraine crisis, in your judgment, it's not an isolated experience, and you argue that uh, far too often the elite US press, it's been a, a reliable mouthpiece for what you call Washington's dubious foreign policy, now, if that is indeed true, how do you account for the widespread media dissent over Vietnam in the late 60s and early 70s?
2: One must remember that followed uh, a steady barrage for years of pro war propaganda. That, that was an acute disillusionment for members of the news media. And that disillusionment actually had a beneficial effect for uh, the next two decades. So you see, the media being much more critical of U.S. foreign policy during the 1970s and 1980s than it ever was before or after. And unfortunately, that died with the lead up to the Persian Gulf War, as though the new generation of journalists had literally forgotten the lessons of how they were lied to, how they were manipulated, how they were used during the Vietnam War. Okay. You
1: mentioned Iraq uh, a few moments ago, and there's no question that the major mainstream media outlets in the United States, from the New York Times on the left to the Wall Street Journal on the right, all the major networks, they were very pro-war in the lead up to the Bush administration's invasion 20 years ago next month. But what about all that media criticism afterwards? I mean, if the elite press... Uh, serves as the national security state's lapdog as you suggest why did for instance the u.s media primarily expose u.s torture and prisoner abuse i think of um, abu Ghraib in early 2004
2: for instance two things there uh again just as the media had been lied to during the vietnam war and that caused resentment in this case they had been lied to about weapons of mass destruction and they that- Saddam posed this dire dire threat of uh, creating a mushroom cloud over some poor city in the West. And therefore they became temporarily more critical of U.S foreign policy, including exposing the abuses, as at Abu Ghraib. However, again, that lesson did not last, and much of it was partisan. Democrat uh, Democrats who, were embedded in the media, embarrassing a Republican president. As America became more partisan in its politics, more viciously partisan, that factor became uh, a bit of a role. But we saw again, once uh, Barack Obama was in office and wanted to bomb Libya, media was right in line for the most part. Same thing with Syria, with the intervention there. As disastrous as that's proven, you found very, very little opposition in the news media. And as with the lead up to the Iraq war and all the other episodes, people who dared criticize the drive toward an intervention were automatically smeared as terrorist sympathizers and so on. The media served as a conduit for that sort of abuse.
1: Just to clarify then, your thesis is that members of the elite media all too often help to advance a dangerous US foreign policy. Ted, what distinguishes your thesis from that of Noam Chomsky? Now, he's a left-wing radical. He's now into his 90s. He he co-wrote a famous book a few decades ago. I remember studying it at university. Uh, It was called The Manufacturing of Consent. And Chomsky's central argument was that the US media, and this is the quote, are effective and powerful ideological institutions that carry out a system-supportive propaganda function. That's Noam Chomsky.
2: Ted Galen-Carpenter, what distinguishes your thesis from Chomsky's? Chomsky makes some valid points, but he attributes too much of it to corporate greed and corruption. That is a factor with the ownership of, of the news media. But I think the more important factor is groupthink. So many of the journalists have been marinated in the same education, the same set of values, the same perspective on the world. They can't think outside the box at all. It's not even so much that they uh, don't want to. It doesn't even occur to them. They also recognize the uh, career implications. If you want to be marginalized rather than uh, be on an upward trajectory in your journalistic career. The fastest way to be marginalized is to question the cliches of the national security state. You will immediately be put on a blacklist and uh, your career is going to uh, begin to erode. That has happened to so many significant journalists in the United States just the past few years.
1: But to the extent that this pattern of big media complicity with the deep state continues, isn't there also a counterreaction? I mean, I know you're lamenting the mission and purpose of an independent media, but in the digital age, we're seeing so many new voices on on all sides of the ideological spectrum come out and questioning the orthodoxies in Washington. How would you respond to that?
2: Unfortunately, most of them are rarely Heard, And again, you have a, uh, a collaboration, and I'm going to use a gentle word there, between government agencies and the most influential, the most large-scale uh, media outlets. And I one troubling development, should have been extremely troubling, is you had uh, the FBI meeting on a regular basis with the executives of Twitter to exclude or marginalize voices that the FBI did not like. And I guarantee you that uh, other agencies of the U.S. government are doing the same thing, having the same corrupt relationships. The FBI paid $3.4 million a year to have that collaboration. Talk about a conflict of interest for any reputable journalistic outlet. engage in that kind of contact but uh, unfortunately that may not silence criticism but it really really marginalizes ted galen carpenter's latest book is called unreliable watchdog
1: the news media and u.s foreign policy it's published by cato books ted um finally your chapter on uh the toxic bias that pollutes russia coverage It's pretty powerful stuff here, and you say this has been the coverage of the Russia debate over the last five years or so. It's been the worst media coverage of an important foreign policy in decades, and you dedicate quite a bit of time and effort to the massive coverage of the the Russia collusion allegation. Tell us about the lead-up to the Mueller report, this period, and as soon as Trump was elected, even before his inauguration... There was a barrage of criticism from the mainstream media. Take us back to that period in early 2017.
2: And what did that media coverage tell you about your thesis? Well, as bad as the Russia collusion uh, aspect was, we have to remember that uh, the designation of Russia as a great enemy and the media uh, propaganda to that effect uh, preceded uh, Donald Trump's election and the Russiagate allegation. What is so troubling, though, is that Russia collusion has been effectively debunked by both the FBI investigation and the Mueller Commission investigation, and yet it still persists. I know there are some people out there who still say Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, but there aren't many who do that. Uh, (laughs) With respect to Russia collusion, uh, that's still a very large percentage of the population who bought into that myth.
1: But didn't the Mueller report that came out in early to mid-2019, I mean, all that all that hoopla about the Trump-Russia collusion, that reached a,
2: a, a decided anti-climax, though, right? But it should have. Unfortunately, uh, you still have that argument persisting.
1: And but Trump was never impeached for Russia collusion. He was impeached for other reasons, but not because of this
2: investigation that took two to three years that's correct however what you find is that the whole toxic image of trump as a russian puppet which is ridiculous because us policy under trump toward russia hardened noticeably it didn't get softer he was never a putin puppet and beyond that again the the lack of exposure to dissenting views about the russia collusion allegation that has persisted. It has become really part of the myth that Trump really was part of this uh, conspiracy. Never mind, there's no substantive evidence to, to really dis, uh, to confirm that. And unfortunately, yes. this has played a very large role in hardening public attitudes generally toward Russia, creating Russia as the latest demon that has to be opposed. Yeah, even at the height of the Cold War, and
1: this is the point that Professor Stephen Cohen always made on this program, he, he would make the point that at the height of the Cold War, there was still a vibrant debate in Washington, uh, in the media, between the confrontationists, those cold warriors who took on the Soviets, and those who were called detentists, those who wanted to reach an accommodation with the Kremlin. And that was at the height of the Cold War. Here we are, 30 years since the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Empire, and you very rarely hear the accommodationists.
2: Extraordinary. Well, in fact, you get arguments that we shouldn't even be talking to Russia. Now, remember, we talked to and negotiated with the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War. We sought ways to at least reduce tensions and reduce the danger of a miscalculation that could lead to a great tragedy globally. You have zealots in the media and elsewhere in the United States now that regard any dialogue with Russia as somehow treasonous and utterly, utterly immoral. Well, that kind of attitude, trying to treat Russia as a pariah like we treat North Korea is extraordinarily dangerous. If we want to avoid a third world war, that's not the way to go about it. And yet, the news media is being a conduit for the most irresponsible, hawkish propaganda. You come up with the proposals for new no fly zones over Ukraine, taking out Russian forces in Ukraine and the Black Sea if uh, Russia escalates matters in Ukraine. These are incredibly irresponsible suggestions, and yet that's what's getting amplified in the news media, not the responsible proposals to try to find a negotiated way out of the Ukraine crisis.
1: Just say, for argument's sake, Russia consolidates its strategic gains in the Donbass And in the Crimean Peninsula, they may even have a a land bridge between southern Donbass and Crimea in the peninsula. And Ukraine is beaten. How do you think the elite media in the United States will come to grips with that
2: reality? That would be a tremendous challenge for members of the uh, establishment media. They would have to argue that. The Biden administration basically did not stand firmly enough, and U.S. allies in Europe. And I suspect there would be an attempt to scapegoat uh, some of the U.S. allies in NATO. But if Russia truly consolidates its gains, effectively divides Ukraine, the media will have to face the reality that about the only way out is some kind of negotiated settlement, or a frozen conflict, a very dangerous one, similar to the armistice that ended the Korean War. And we would have yet another dangerous flashpoint that could erupt at any time.
1: And remember, we're talking about a great power, uh, a declining great power, but one nonetheless with a vast arsenal of nuclear weapons. Ted, always great to have you on Between the Lines.
2: Thank you very much, Tom.
1: That was Ted Galen Carpenter. His latest book is called Unreliable Watchdog. The news media and US foreign policy is published by Cato Books. Up next, Myanmar, two years since the coup. Well, it's been two years since the military in Myanmar staged a coup against the government of Aung San Suu Kyi, which had just been overwhelmingly re-elected. The violence and the repression that accompanied the military takeover, well, that's never stopped. In fact, things have deteriorated significantly. We don't hear enough about this. So for more on Myanmar, let's turn to Amanda Hodge. She's the Australian's Southeast Asia correspondent. Amanda, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thanks, Tom. Well, tell us about the latest on the second anniversary, uh, the Burmese military using airstrikes to crush the opposition.
0: Yeah. So the airstrike, that, that's been a feature of of this um, security clampdown on the civil disobedience movement in Myanmar since they staged the coup in February on February the 1st, 2021. But it's become um, the main feature of the, the Junta's fight against um, this sort of continuing resistance as it has become clear that it's failed to gain control of the majority of the country. Its ground forces have failed to do that. The uh, They had anticipated that whatever opposition they faced in the days and, I guess, months after the coup would eventually dissipate in the face of their sort of overwhelming force by the Myanmar military known as the Tatmadaw, but that just hasn't happened And, in fact, the the resistance forces have begun to organise in ways that no one really expected. As a result, they've had to switch to an air war and the Junta has the benefit of some fairly heavy Russian armaments. Uh, They're using MI-35 helicopter gunships and the evidence is that um, there's some pretty arbitrary targets on civilian schools, places of worship. And, and that there's um, there's been huge casualties in the last three to four months as, as they've switched to this air war. Um,
1: now, given the sanctions on the regime, you mentioned that the Junta is still getting supplies for sophisticated military from the Russians. What about the Chinese?
0: It's not really known. Uh, there has been... Some sales in the past for sure, but it's Russia that is overwhelmingly the supplier of weaponry to the military junta. There's been visits, tit-for-tat visits by Junta Commander Min on Lying to Moscow, and visits mm. by the defense, the Russian Defense Secretary and Deputy Defense Secretary, several, in fact, since the coup to Napidor, which is the capital of Myanmar. And um, the Russian military or the Russian state has done very well in terms of um, military sales to Myanmar in the past few years.
1: Amanda, given the overwhelming military power of the Junta, how do you account for the reasonably impressive performance of the resistance?
0: Yeah, look, I think um, the resistance forces have managed to evolve in a way, um, and a lot of that has come down to organization on the ground fundraising by the National Unity Government, this parallel government amongst the diaspora, Myanmar diaspora around the world, that has raised tens of millions of dollars, that is now funding arms um, in within the country. Um, but it, it, it's such an overwhelming resistance to this junta that we now believe that the People's Defense Forces that are that have risen up in response to this junta they're now 65,000 strong and there are dozens of new people's defense force battalions being recognized you know over the weeks and months since they started to form about a year ago and there's, an, there's all these tiers of militia, local and, and district level, that are sort of coalescing into a central command structure. It's quite fascinating to watch. And I think what that means is we're in for a very, very prota- protracted insurgency in Myanmar um, with little sign of any, any way through this crisis, actually.
1: Okay, now with the Western focus obviously on Ukraine and, and elsewhere and, of course, the very limited support from the ASEAN neighbours in the region, is there any significant Western support for the opposition, of course, also known as the, the National Unity Government?
0: Well, as far as military support goes, there's been none. It's it's essentially sort of oh. thoughts and prayers support for um, for the opposition. <laughs> yeah. And uh, very little else. The US provides a bit of administrative support, some medical supports, some humanitarian assistance. And the national unity government, which is which calls itself the sort of um parallel civilian government, mm-hmm. the rightful governing body of Myanmar, has appealed to the international community for at least for anti-airstrike weapons, uh, but there's been no response to that. The way that the resistance is arming itself is by sourcing weapons from the ethnic armed organisations that have carried on long-term insurgencies on the borders of Myanmar. Hmm. And interestingly, in the centre of Myanmar, which has for decades been a Bama Buddhist um, majority region that was loyal to the state, there there are now very strong pockets of resistance in central Myanmar. And in those areas, we're seeing dozens of small armament workshops springing up that are manufacturing small arms for the People's Defence Forces, People's Defence Teams and local defence teams that are the three um, sort of levels of resistance, armed resistance groups that are now operating as anti-Yunta forces in Myanmar.
1: Sounds like the opposition is somewhat fractured. So if the military kept its pledge to hold elections later this year, would the opposition participate?
0: Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, National League for Democracy certainly wouldn't. Uh, it was her government that was ousted in the February 1st coup in 2021. It had just won a landslide.
1: And she's still in house arrest, isn't she's she? She's still
0: under house arrest. In fact, she's, she's now been convicted of might be a dozen offences and faces 33 years in jail. She's 77, so of course, was the rest of her life basically. That's a life sentence and she and she and there are still more charges against her. What's happened in recent weeks is that the the junta passed new regulations that required all political parties that wanted to contest any future elections to register in the next two months, and then to be able to prove that it had political offices in at least half of the townships across the country within 180 days. Now, of course, the National League for Democracy can't do that because uh, they are leading the uh, anti-Yunta resistance movement, and most of the NLD um, prominent figures are in hiding if they come out of hiding to set up political uh, uh, offices, they will, of course, be targeted by the by the Junta.
1: Okay. Let's try to put a positive spin on this terrible tragedy and look at um, the Australian economist, uh, Professor Sean Turnell, who was, of course, Ung San Su Kyi's senior advisor. Now, he was released late last year and he had a very ma- moving interview with... Sarah Ferguson on the ABC's Seven Thirty Report. What did the release of Turnell tell you? I mean, did that was there an upside here in how the uh, the government is um, conducting things? Because there was a widespread view that he could be locked up for life as well.
0: Hmm. Well, um, I think the the expectation was that Sean would be held for as long as the Junta needed him to make its case against Aung San Suu Kyi. Sean was and still is a longtime economic policy advisor to Su Kyi and has been for for well over a decade and they needed Sean to uh, build their case that she had breached uh, colonial era state secrecy laws And he was never likely to be released until that case had been made and she had been convicted. Sean himself was also convicted of breaching state secrets for holding uh, documents that were essentially aimed at recovering the pandemic-hit economy of Myanmar. And given he was helping to draft that recovery program, he was, of course, entitled to be holding some of these documents that he himself wrote. Um, So it was just an absolute farce. It's just nonsense. But um, Sean was never going to be released until the Junta was satisfied it it had built its case against Su Chi. He was convicted in September and then in November, 21 months after he was arrested, he was finally released. And in fact, he gave us the first interview. I sat down with him in Sydney. And the thing that most surprised me about um, his story is just um, how badly he was treated. I think we had all expected that Sean would be given preferential treatment as a foreigner and, and a person of some note. But in fact, he was quite badly mistreated for the time that he was in um he was in the Junta custody well, he, he
1: didn't he didn't have a shower for like a what twelve to eighteen months
0: no he he, he was kept in solitary confinement he wasn't allowed to see anyone he couldn't read any books yeah. for months on end um he was shackled in the middle of the night for, mm. for hours of interrogations you know and then he was transferred to these terrible Junta prisons in Napydale that just leaked as soon as it rained. And I mean it was, you know, eight out of a bucket, had COVID five times. The story is just horrific. And um, you know, Sean's not a a big guy, and um and it took a real toll on him, but he's he's actually a pretty incredible person, I have to say.
1: Now finally, Amanda, one of the giants of Australian diplomacy, Richard Woolcott, he died recently, aged ninety-five. Now We paid a tribute to Walcott on this program last week. He was a long-time supporter of intense Australian engagement in Southeast Asia, most notably Indonesia, but across the region. Do you think that given Canberra's focus on China, America, Japan and India, all understandable concerns, but do you think that Canberra is sufficiently engaged in Southeast Asia?
0: Look, I think that it's that Penny Wong, as, you know, the Albanese government's foreign minister, has done a, a pretty incredible job in the time that she's been Foreign Minister, she's, you know, sort of (laughs) doesn't seem to have ever stopped flying around the region and she's done a lot of trips in Southeast Asia and the impression I get is that the governments of Southeast Asia believe that Australia is far more engaged now under the Albanese government than the Morrison government had been and I think we Mm -hmm. can, I think it would be fair to credit Penny Wong with that um, given the work she's Mm -hmm. done uh, she's very visible. And
1: ditto the South Pacific.
0: Ditto the South Pacific. That's right. She's been so visible. She's, you know, she's said all the right things. She's had a lot of time to think about how she would, you know, she she would run the foreign ministry, and and I think it's showing in the sort of sophisticated message that she's that she's sending to the region, and they're responding very positively.
1: Great to have you back on Between the Lines. Thanks, Tom. Well, that was Amanda Hodge, the Australian newspaper's Southeast Asia correspondent, who conducted the first Australian interview with Sean Turnell. Up next, how Europe is winning the energy war against Putin. Well, as the war between Ukraine and Russia grinds on into its second year, the Russian fossil fuels that Europe had grown accustomed to, they no longer flow so freely. So how is Putin's strategy of weaponising and depriving Europe of Russian gas, how's that played out? Charlie Cooper is the senior energy correspondent for Politico. He's based in London and has been following developments closely. Hi there, Charlie. Welcome to Between the Lines.
3: Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's
1: our pleasure. Now, take us back to September of last year, so this is 2022. Just how grim was the situation when Russia turned off gas supplies to Europe?
3: I mean, pretty grim. In September, it was that month that uh, Vladimir Putin gave a speech where he made this kind of veiled threat uh, to Europe, basically suggesting that they would freeze uh, if they stick to their plan of energy sanctions against Russia. And I've got to say at the time that felt like a pretty uh viable threat. The the risk of gas shortages and gas is extremely important for 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 heating homes and for electricity in in, in, in most European in many European countries. Um, it, it looked like a pretty viable and potent strategy. At that time, the the fears for for shortages of gas had driven up prices to astronomical levels to the north of 200 euros per per megawatt hour, that's around 10 times what they'd been for most of 2021. Uh, The EU, the European Union, had drawn up plans uh, for countries to cut their gas demand and, and, and keep supplies safe. There were kind of emergency plans in place to share gas across borders if necessary. You know, energy experts were, were speaking in terms of, I remember hearing one in the U.S. saying, I'm really worried about my family and friends in, in Europe about what's going to happen this winter. It was a really dire situation. Now, here yes. we are in February. Uh, there have not yes. been gas shortages. Gas remains quite expensive, but it's a lot cheaper. Uh, so so Europe, just changed. to
1: clarify, it's passed its first winter test without Russian energy. What What changed?
3: Well, effectively, you could say that Europe has been... I like to say it's been replumbed. You know, a huge amount of Europe's gas used to come by pipeline from Russia. That is now down to. I mean, it was about forty percent in uh, before before the war. Of Europe's gas came 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 from Russia via those pipelines. Uh, that is now down to closer to ten percent, a bit above ten percent, uh, according to the latest figures. Although just a little bit out out of date now. We're talking a couple of months ago, and what has changed is that Europe gets its gas now. Quite expensively from overseas, it comes via ship as liquefied natural gas, primarily from the United States. And that Europe has been successful in replacing that huge amount of Russian gas that it was getting with LNG from from elsewhere. That's come at great expense, uh, but it has filled the gap. Europe's also been a bit lucky. Uh, it's been a fairly mild winter in Europe, yes, and that obviously means yes. the gas demand is lower. It takes it, it doesn't take as mm-hmm. much to to warm up, warm up all those buildings. So a combination of preparation uh, and luck uh, has meant that Europe has got through the winter.
1: Has Europe's success in keeping the lights on is that does that have anything to do with burning more coal than it has in years?
3: No, there was a, a strong expectation that coal would would come in and 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 and, and replace that lost gas supply. But there was a study actually just last week by a think tank called ember which uh indicated that that didn't really happen in any in any major way another thing uh, that is important to mention is that gas demand has really been cut i mentioned that the eu uh had those policies around pushing countries to cut their gas demand that was extremely successful countries uh really did crack down and in some places that wasn't necessarily good news you know that meant businesses that use gas to uh uh, industrial businesses—I mean that use gas to produce their products. Many of them had to shut down. There's a, a glass, a glass, glass factory that one of my colleagues went to go and see in France, which literally just could not afford to to keep the furnaces going anymore and had to shut them down over winter and to re- restart again in April. That kind of thing has happened all over Europe. It's come at an economic cost. Uh, so it's not been, you know, Europe's strong position in the energy war right now has not been without cost. Uh, but it hasn't been as deep an economic uh, hit as many as many expected. Europe is, most projections say, not facing a recession now this year. So I think it's fair to say that round one of the energy war with with Russia, Europe, uh, is winning.
1: Okay, we'll get back to Europe winning the energy war against Russia very soon. But uh, this is Paul Suzak. He's an analyst at EMBA. Now, that's a European think tank that aims to expedite the shift away from coal. Now, he says, That although gas mostly filled Europe's energy demand gap in recent years, he argues that coal has taken the lead of late. And that's partly because, Charlie, Germany and other countries brought plants back online and partly because gas is so expensive that it is more profitable than for utilities to burn coal. So how would you respond to that argument?
3: Well, it was Ember's report last week that um, challenged this 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 strong prediction that that coal would come back in a major way. I mean, countries have brought coal back online; that's definitely true as a um, as a kind of backup. But uh, there's also been a huge surge in renewables in Europe to to to, to fill that gap. Uh, and this was the big resurgence, return of coal uh, that that many were expecting. According to Ember, I, I don't think has come back in quite quite the same way.
1: Okay. This is the Wall Street Journal. Across Europe, industry is leaning on coal as well as oil to keep operating at a time of high gas prices. And according to the IEA, this is the International Energy Agency, European demand for coal helps explain why the world is on track for record coal consumption in the past year.
2: Charlie.
3: So coal generation, uh, according according to Ember's latest report, fell in in all four of the final months of 2022. Uh this was primarily caused by that falling electricity demand that that, that we mentioned. Uh and according to to, to Ember, those 26 coal units that that were brought back as an emergency standby, they were running at just 18% average utilization in the final quarter of 2022. And I guess it the the return of coal happened in a, in, 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 a, in a minor way, I think it's going to be a short-term phenomenon. I think the mm, mm. long-term consequence of this energy crisis is going to be a much stronger push for renewable energy to fill that gas gap. and then of course, with, with you know the gas gap itself has been filled by by more gas again in the medium term, that LNG coming from coming from the United States and elsewhere.
1: This is CIS Limited. In the first two months of December, so this is December 22, uh, Germany generated 49% more power with coal than in the same period a year earlier, and after banning Russian coal as part of sanctions in Moscow, it goes on to say that Europe has imported coal from Colombia Indonesia and South Africa now you're saying this is just a short-term fix in response to the Ukraine crisis but just say the Ukraine crisis continues will there be enough renewable backup to make up to replace that coal that Europe's relied on if they're right
3: it is more likely that yes that renewable surge that uh, bringing in gas from other sources is likely to be the the where where European countries lean, more strongly there's 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 real serious commitment to to the climate goals uh that european countries have to uh to become the, they want to become the first net zero constant they want to win that climate race uh, and the eu is pushing that very hard so i think while there has been this uh, short-term return to coal in, in, a, in a kind of relatively relatively small way i i yeah, i think my prediction would be that is only going to be a short-term phenomenon
1: so Europe looks like it will survive the, the current Northern Hemisphere winter, which, as you say, has been relatively mild. I stress relatively because the winter you've just endured would be a lot colder than most Australians have experienced, Charlie. But what about in a year's time when Europe goes into another winter and, you know, just say it's a, it's a bad winter and, and this Ukraine crisis is still raging? What are the concerns and difficulties ahead for Europe?
3: Yeah, I mean it's very much uh, round one of the energy war, and no one, or few people, uh, expected this to be a kind of one winter uh, problem. Um, as you say, the Ukraine Ukrainian war sadly does not seem likely to. There's there's no resolution in sight. It's likely that's going to uh, continue for some time yet, and I think the most most European politicians are facing up to the prospect of next winter being. Uh, potentially more difficult. However, a lot does depend on how the EU gets on this winter. So at the moment, uh, gas storages in the EU are still 70% full as of, um, I think, the last figures from Sunday, so Sunday 5th of February. And how much gas is left in those storages by the end of winter has a direct relation to how easy it's going to be for European countries to uh to get to a place of gas security for next winter without completely breaking the bank because it's quite a tight market out there in, in in the in the global marketplace for liquefied natural gas that gas is going to be very expensive and the more of it that Europe needs to refill those storages for winter 2023 2024 the, the more the more expensive that's going to be for Europe the more problematic and the risk and the higher the risk again of a gas shortage assuming this is that russia doesn't turn the taps back on yes uh i don't think many people do expect it to do that but there are some who are now wondering whether putin might take a kind of divide and conquer strategy and start you know turning the gas back on for for, for some eastern european countries to try and uh shake that unity of the eu at the time it was just yes. starting to think hey we, we can we can wean ourselves off russian gas and dependence on russian gas
1: Well, there's no question that Brussels has really uh, retaliated against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. And Europe has announced, I think just this week, actually, Charlie, Europe announced a ban on Russian diesel. Uh, That'll presumably have some sort of impact. And the EU price cap on Russian fossil fuels, there's that. There's the sanctions. Um, So to what extent are they all reducing Putin's war chest? Or is Moscow still enjoying significant revenues from the trade and export of energy.
3: I mean, it absolutely is still enjoying significant revenues from the trade of of energy. It's its most important export. And last year, with the concerns around energy supply around the world, energy prices being pushed up so high, it was a real bumper year for for Moscow's revenues. Now, there are the first signs that that might be changing. Uh, you mentioned EU sanctions on oil. There are actually no EU sanctions on gas, it's important to mention. All that was Russia's own kind of shut off of supply. But in December, the EU banned uh, imports of all seaborne crude oil from, from Russia. And that's pretty huge. I mean, Europe uh, accounted for around half of Russia's crude exports until until the war that's now all crude oil that has to go elsewhere, uh, EU countries can still facilitate that, their, their companies can still facilitate that trade, shipping companies, insurance companies, via something called the, the price cap, which is something the EU is enforcing alongside uh, G7 and Australia, uh, which means that they can those companies can only facilitate the trade of that oil if it's sold at below a $60 per barrel level. And... Most Russian crude oil, the Ural's crude uh, that goes that used to go to Europe typically trades below that level anyway. Um, but European Commission officials do think that this is this cap is working because buyers in China, buyers in India, they know that Russia's options for selling that crude is are, are reduced, and therefore they they feel mm-hmm. in a strong position to negotiate down that price. And there are the first signs now that's um, that's starting to hit Russian uh, Russian oil income There's a think tank in Europe, the Center for uh clean air and energy research who think that the the, the EU sanction on crude and the price caps combined might be costing Russia's uh, coffers about to the tune of 160 million euros a day at this point These are you know preliminary estimates, but there are those early signs that the sanctions are now starting to bite. And just recently, uh, Sunday, 5th of February, the EU went further and uh, finalised its ban on Russian oil products. So that's things like diesel, things like jet fuel that are made from that's oil. right, yeah. So it's going deeper and deeper. And I think the, the Kremlin is starting to feel the pain. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds this year and whether 2023
1: is... Yeah. So finally, I mean, if, as you say, I mean, you just said this, that sanctions are starting to bite and Russia is inflicted, uh, you know, serious pain... And uh, that helps in the war sooner than some analysts expect. I suppose the question here to conclude with, Charlie, is would would Europe ever again trust Russia as a supplier of energy?
3: I think the experience of 2022 uh, has taught Europe, not just on the energy front, but on many other economic fronts, that it can no longer be reliant upon outside partners uh for for products for materials that are of vital strategic importance i think there was an attitude among many european leaders for many years that uh we were living in a safe market-based global economy where even if you had political differences with with, with, with a country trade would continue uh economic interaction could, could continue unaffected by that that was clearly proven to be not the case uh, with Russia's actions after the, the war in Ukraine. I think, if you look at the EU's relationships with China, I think it's reassessing those in in in, in the same light. I think the idea of a degree of economic um, self-dependence is really taking hold in Europe as a as a, as a key philosophy for the next um for this new geopolitical era.
1: Charlie, great to have you on Between the Lines. Thanks very much for having me. That's Charlie Cooper, he's Politico's Senior Energy Correspondent, based in London. Well that's it for Between the Lines for another week, and if you'd like to listen to last week's episode, including my exchange with Amanda Stoker and Georgina Downer on the future of the Liberal Party, just go to the ABC Listen app and search for the Between the Lines podcast which, of course, you can download for free. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now.